everyone. This is Amanda Borchel Dan. And I'm Jessica Steinberg. Your host for Times Will Tell. A weekly podcast from the Times of Israel. Hi, and welcome to this week's Times Will Tell. It's Jessica Steinberg, and I'm here this week at OCD, recently named Israel's best restaurant at the Israel Kitchen Awards. And it's named for the acronym for Obsessive Compulsive Disorder because it refers to the very meticulous care that the culinary team here pour into each dish of the nightly tasting menu. I'm speaking with Shalom Simcha Elbert, the Jerusalem-born and raised Italian-trained chef who found his way to fermentation. He's now the head of R&D at the Jaffa-based OCD, which prides itself on being a zero-waste restaurant led by Chef Raz Rahav. By the way, you will have to wait until April to get a reservation here, and guests can inform the restaurant of any kind of dietary restriction. So note that for yourselves. Okay, so I am here at top of the morning with Shalom Simcha at OCD. No one else is here. Correct. And we are sitting around the bar, the empty bar seating at OCD, and we're going to talk a little bit about how you came to this role that you have of head of R&D. Um, I know that you mentioned to me beforehand that you found your way when you were 15 years old and fried a batch of schnitzel <laughs> for yourself and for your classmates. Tell yeah. us a little bit about what was happening at that point in your life. So good morning. So basically I was at high school. I was studying in a dorm and for Saturday, for I was there for Shabbat. And the food was terrible. So I decided <laughs> uh, to try making schnitzel. Um, it was the most basic thing that I knew how to make. And I thought that it was a good idea. And it was the first time in my life that I had something that was reciprocatory, that I got a good feedback in. Um, and it was something that I was finally, people wanted something from me that I had to give. And it clicked within that time period how powerful food can be. Um, that it brings people around the table, that it's more than just a physical feeding, but an actual understanding about how what a strong sociological tool food can be. Mm -hmm. um, and then from there, it just never stopped. Right, but you were only 15. I was so 15. You, yeah. had, you had a while to go before you could, I don't know, yeah. did you break out early from... No, no, no. So actually not <laughs> at all, but it just it fascinated me. Um, from that time... I started reading books and watching TV shows and um, reading magazines and cookbooks. And I was I was eating kosher at the time. So I was also still fascinated about food that wasn't kosher. Out there. Yeah. Right. And I, I, I was in an internal dilemma of how I was going to do it and what was going to be. And I was not talking. the first person to deal with that issue. I'm yeah. sure. Um, and I was actually talking to my rabbi a lot, Rav Steinsaltz. Um, and he told me always that that's the challenge. That would be my challenge in life. Um, obviously, I chose not to take it as a challenge, but um, uh, but that's also part of why I've left uh, being religious was because I felt that it was uh, holding me back. And it was just something that led me throughout all of high school. I wouldn't learn. I would read books, cookbooks. I wouldn't uh, go to class and I would just try and cook for my friends and try new things. What did trying new things ma ma mean at that point in your life? I mean, it wasn't anything sophisticated no, obviously but what was it but for, i mean if you yeah. take like you know in the morning you eat a grilled cheese then you know then starting to make it a little bit more finesse and a little bit more fine and then using different breads and uh different sauces and different cheeses and learning about it and it was i was very very everything was self-taught so it wasn't anything that gourmet and it's 
I'm laughing to look, looking back at it now. Sure. I can imagine that white bread that you were using for the most part. Of course. <laughs> but then, you know, suddenly you go into sourdough and you're like, wait, what is sourdough? And then you learn about bread. And that's actually where I started fermentation with. Ah, it was bread. Yeah, that makes bread. sense. Bread was the first thing that I fermented. You were fermenting in your high no, school that dorm? Wasn't, that wasn't okay, in was high school. Say, that was okay. after, after high school. Um, before I, did the, I went into the army. Um, I started making bread, sourdough, and it just fascinated me. And this is before, let's just say, before the craze that has happened in the last bunch of years. Exactly. Um, which actually I wrote my thesis about. I wrote my thesis about why people start baking during times of crisis and mm. why during COVID um, sourdough took such an uprise. Oh, okay. I want to hear more about that. Of course. Yeah. Okay. Uh, wait, wait. Well, let's let's stick with the timeline for the moment. Okay. But then you did the army. You went to the army. Went to the military. I had nothing to do with food there, even though in the middle I was thinking about going and trying to be a cook for a in base. the army. Yeah, yeah. For an army sure. base, also just to learn logistics, because I think people don't understand the importance about how much logistics goes into restaurants and and cooking. Um, and that was at the time I wanted to be a chef. I wanted to be a cook. And and I wanted to learn what it was like to feed five thousand people a day, which the army offers that opportunity. Yeah, and but did I think that happen? It didn't work out, um, okay. which was a shame because I think there's a lot to learn. It doesn't matter the food that was actually obviously it's important that it tastes good and that it's healthy and et cetera, et cetera. But I think the logistics behind it um, are incredible, and it's really something that as a somebody who wanted to open a restaurant at the time, really wanted to learn and study about. Um, I got out of the army and then I went traveling, um, very food oriented. I went from the Galapagos Islands all the way up to California. I had a little uh, Kube business where I funded actually my, my, uh, Your my trip? trip with Impressive. that. Yeah, uh, we would sell Kube in Jerusalem and it was just a lot of fun. <laughs> and then I realized that kitchens are just a little bit too small in the impact that they can have. Mm. You feed even in big restaurants. You feed 150 people in the evening. Right. That's not a lot of people in a month. Right. To affect in terms to of... To have a, a real effect on food and education and, and, and what the world is going through and, and um, agriculture. Meaning you don't want to just give people a meal and send them off. Right. You want Correct. some other kind of longer term effect. I, I felt that really, again, I'm going to... I'll say it again. Food is a sociological tool that I felt mm -hmm. that I can impact through it and with it a lot of people and and do something that's also good and educate and and change something make, okay. make a change within the food system which is very 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 broken okay um and then i i was looking for schools or for something to do right and i found this um amazing university which feels like hogwarts yeah and um as something that Somebody went into my brain and picked it and basically just built a university around what interested me. Okay, tell us where um, and what. The University of Gastronomic Sciences in uh, Bra, Italy, mm -hmm. in Piedmont. Not shocking that it would be in Italy, of but course. okay. Um, it's where the Slow Food Movement was born. Um, and the founder of Slow Food also founded the university, Carlo Petrini. Okay. Um, How's your Italian? I'm fluent. Now. now. But then? I went without knowing a word of Italian. Wow. Um, and the first year is all in English, and then the second and third year are in Italian. So you got to pick up Italian in your first year yeah, in but preparation. It's, it's, a, it's a difference between picking up Italian and speaking like a third grader than studying academic Italian. I would imagine. Which was probably the biggest challenge, but also one of the biggest gifts. Is there sort of like an ulpan for you have, studying you Italian? You have six months of, of intensive. Classes? No, not intensive. No. Once a week. 
once a week. So you just had to really. So what I at- did was is I I immersed myself in my, my Italian friends. I really just made sure that they only spoke Italian, and I just no listened. English, no practicing their English. No on English, you. and and even if it started off the evening started off in English, then we would they would quickly go to Italian, especially once you know wine was flowing and, and the conversation and, yeah. and different cultural um, references that you don't understand, and they could only explain in Italian. And I immersed myself in in with my Italian friends. Um, in the first six months, I would just sit there and not understand anything. And slowly, and, slowly. And slowly, slowly. And then um, during summer break, instead of coming back to Israel or traveling, I went and I did an internship on a new farm. And that really changed everything. So that's what brought you yeah. into fermentation, into, um, or not necessarily? No, that actually, I was uh, I was always fascinated with butchering and uh, uh, butchering. Oh, yes, that's yeah. right. Um, and I worked as a... I don't have a good word, a better word than... Tell, tell us the Italian word just so we can hear it. Oh, uh, macellaio. Okay, um, yes. Which is a butcher, but also somebody who slaughters the animals. Uh-huh. Uh, so you're, you're, with, you're, you're in the process from the beginning so to the So there's end, a good friend sense. of mine. She has a farm on Rimini, which is in the east of Italy, northern Italy. Um, and they grow in a biodynamic uh, type of agriculture. They grow all their animals, um, which goes from chicken, pheasants, ducks, um, pigs, rabbits, um, goats, sheep. Wow. All of those. The um, whole menagerie. Everything. And they roam wildly in the farm. Um, and they have a 60-acre farm. Um, and they just roam there wildly. But then everything is slaughtered on-site and butchered on-site. And everything is very farm-to-table, zero kilometer. Um, and the butcher there has never left his city. He doesn't speak a word of English. And you were at his side. And for two months, that was what was it? Was it going back, hearkening back to your religious roots? Was there at that point, was it just understood that this is where you were heading? Was it bizarre to be handling certain animals that you knew from your religious studies that this was not something you would have touched way back when? I think it was, I mean, my father was a shochet. Uh, religi- uh, a religiously uh, trained slot- slaughterer. slaughterer. Yes. Yeah. Um, in the former Soviet Union. Uh-huh. So, wow. Yeah. So there's, there's, so a, bit, there's, there's a bit of a connection. background. There's a connection, for sure. Uh, I thought it would be a lot harder. Uh, but it wasn't. Uh, but it wasn't, and I think it really it gave me an understanding of where my meat comes from and what it means to slaughter and what it means to take a life's animal's And to life. really know and every part. And to, and to know every part and to use and, and really to nose to tail and to understand um, the um, anatomy of animals and what you can do with it and um, different temperatures and aging. And it was really fascinating and amazing, but it also, it takes... Takes a toll to take uh, to take an animal's life. It's it's it was like the first first large animal that I. Uh, it's a funny word to, that I slaughtered. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, What's the word in Italian for slaughter? Um, amachato. Amachato so is related like to to kill. Yeah, but it was it was intense. Hmm. It was intense. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Now you did that for how many summers? Or I did that for two months for in the two summer, months. but intensive. So by the end of it, I was speaking more Italian than I remembered English. Well, that, that's uh, a way to to learn Italian. And I mean, it was you. I was fully immersed in an Italian environment. So now you were in your second year yeah. of school. Okay. The no, and I was fermenting throughout the whole entire time. Um, and the Noma Guide to Fermentation just came out. Um, and fermentation took off in the world. Right. Well. 
the record of fermentation, people recording how they were fermenting. Well, how they were doing it. But what were, you were from, what were you fermenting, for, I mean, for I've example? Been, I mean, from bread to pickles to vinegar to kombuchas. Your hand on. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. Um, and it's just, I think the... Seasonal? Fun, in other words, like what course, was coming across your course. table? In Italy, you really don't have an option other than seasonal. Right. Because you go to the markets and you won't That's have a tomato in, in the winter. You just won't. So tell us a little bit about fermentation because sometimes our, you know, our audience, they might be familiar, but they might not be. Just to give us a sense of what of fermentation course. is as we go forward. So fermentation is a microbial process um, that takes, I like to, to consider it as taking one ingredient and turning it into another. Um, so grapes, um, taking it and turning it into wine, flour and water, turning it into bread, um, through microbial, um, interaction, um, basically bacteria, yeast, mold, fungi, um, all of that family, um, are basically feeding off of what we give them and turning it, um, through their digestive system into something that we enjoy a lot. It's very funny to look it's amazing. at it like that. It's amazing to think about it that way. Um, but I mean, people, we don't, we're usually not familiar with how much fermentation we have in our life or how much we're dependent on fermentation. I mean, we're fermented. Nice. Um, because we're fermented, yes. We're, our bacteria and our microbial biome and, and our body and everything that's going on is, is bacteria that's that's working and helping us and, and making sure that we're healthy and that our gut is healthy and um, and we're dependent on it. And it's very, very, very sad to see how we're trying to avoid bacteria mm-hmm. um, because it has a negative um, association, right. Right. even though it's it's a critical part of our life. I mean, right. um, if, if fermentation or bacteria wouldn't happen, then we couldn't have coffee in the morning. Coffee has to go through fermentation. Cacao has to go through fermentation. Wine has to go through fermentation. Beer, bread. And these are just the basic, uh, the basics. Um, so going down that rabbit hole, which is a rabbit hole. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just, uh, it fascinated me. From that, from that, from the get-go, from there you from, were... From doing yeah. bread when I was 18 or 19 years old, I just understood there was something amazing to me to see... I took flour and water and I mixed it together and the next day it doubled itself. And it was just something that like I hadn't added any yeast or anything. It was just out in the open and there was magic happening. Um, and it's and it teaches you a lot about also processes and, and learning what time is. And time is a crucial ingredient um, within fermentation. You have to be very, very, very patient, which nowadays is very hard. I have learned that through my own sourdough process yeah. that I'm in the midst of. <laughs> it's, and so, and my spelt sourdough <laughs> fell very flat yesterday. <laughs> it can happen. Yeah, spelt it still doesn't really. Good, yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, and that's also the beauty about bread. Bread usually always tastes good, no yes. matter what. Yes, yes, yes. So, okay, so th- bring us back to where. So, where you were going to go with this? So, you're of course. You're exploring all the time in your own kitchen, I right. imagine, at that um, point. And sp- after in my first summer, I went to volunteer at MAD um, in uh, Copenhagen, which is um, a symposium through the NOMA group. Um, and it was actually, sadly, the last MAD that was in, because of COVID. Because um, uh, what year are we in at this point? This was 2018. And I went to MAD and I was fascinated with what was going on in NOMA and how... Um, they were organizing this event and the volunteers that I met there were just incredible. Um, and I had the privilege of meeting David Zilber, who was the head of fermentation at the time at Noma. He, I brought him to our university, uh, to come and teach. He actually came, um, not once, but he came 
one time it was a whole it was a lecture for the whole entire university it was the whole university stopped classes everyone uh, came and everybody came the, the biggest hall was packed wow. really an amazing uh, three hour lecture <laughs> um, which was incredible and then the next year he came and he gave a course to a master class um, which was really it was an amazing thing to see how somebody saw the value of teaching and not only being in a restaurant and educating and really teaching um, what he believed in where did that put you then? What um, I was always fascinated. I really wanted to go work for David. Um, David was—he's just—he's he really is a genius. He's somebody that I find fascinating and 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 artistic and mindful and really just out there. He's 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 always thinking in different ways and in different. Really pushing the envelope on this whole area uh, for sure. And and he always outspoke also being better in the kitchen and why kitchens are flawed and what's going on and how how he wanted to be better and how um, he thought the system could be better. Um, and I was I was not planning on coming back to Israel. I was planning on going to Copenhagen and staying there for at least a few years. And Right. Uh, I see. And the pandemic really interrupted that. And then I came here for a visit to Israel. Came to in, visit uh, the friends in July, and family. Mm-hmm. In July uh, 2020. Um, the sous chef of OCD reached out to me and wanted to start fermenting. So then you come back to Israel sort of unexpectedly before, before you really had planned to, in a sense. Right. And OCD, you and the and you're saying, and I was already consulting OCD. Um, I was already. It wasn't really consulting. It was just helping them get the right equipment, um, start fermenting. If they had questions, books. Back up for a second, Shalom. Tell us. We we spoke a little bit in the intro about what OCD is and how it just actually won best restaurant in Israel. But what are the concepts behind OCD? OCD opened eight years ago by Chef Razrav, um, Erez Waritz and Idan Blumenthal. They opened the restaurant with a concept of having, at the time, 18 uh, people around the bar, getting the same food at the same time, a closed menu, uh, seasonal, that changed every three to four months. Um, and to kind of bring that type of uh, cuisine to Israel. Um, eight years later, yeah, the restaurant, now 23 seats, uh, 23 seats after our <laughs> renovation that we just did in, in October, November. The restaurant is still giving the same menu to everybody, um, but with a different ideology that's been developed in the past two years since um, I've joined, and we've kind of put together our, our minds and, and understood the responsibility that we have. Um, Raz and Erez and Idan opened with the knowledge that food is a medium as well. And it's, again, it's, it's a medium to educate. It's a medium to speak. It's a medium to talk about what's going on in the world. Um, because the beauty of the restaurant is that the cooks are the people who also obviously cook, but they also serve the dishes. Right. We're sitting here, just listeners, just so you know, it's a... A, an open bar. Uh, a U-shaped, uh, almost... Uh, right, it's an open bar system, essentially. The kitchen is right across from this from the bar seating so you are looking and speaking and watching everything as it happens exactly let's take a quick break when we're back shalom will tell us how they build the constantly changing menu at ocd and offer us a little tasting shalom dear listeners this is daniel hartman and i'm yossi klein halevi together we host the podcast for heaven's sake from the shalom hartman institute 
These have been some of the most challenging days for me personally, for Israel, and for the Jewish people. And one of the ways in which I've gotten through this is that I found solace and meaning through discussions with my dear friend and study partner, Daniil Hartman. And I hope that the Times of Israel listeners will join us as we continue to tackle the pressing questions facing the Jewish people here at For Heaven's Sake, which has become the number one Judaism podcast. Well, Daniil, I'd also like to recommend the Identity Crisis podcast hosted by our colleague and friend Yehuda Kurtzer. It's a series of fantastic conversations with leading figures in Jewish life, thought, and culture. You know, for decades, the Hartman Institute has been a preeminent destination for Jewish ideas and learning. Now you can access Hartman Ideas on these chart-topping podcasts at shalomhartman.org forward slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We are privileged to help guide you through these challenging and even unsettling times. Okay. So now you've been at OCD for how long? For two years. Okay. Um, but you've got a vision. Yeah. Um, we basically understood that when Raz and his uh, sous chef were starting to ferment, we understood that we wanted to build a pantry. Mm-hmm. And then we, it was during COVID and it was lockdown and we had a lot of time to sit and talk and play. And then we understood that because of the, the profile that OCD has or because of the type of uh, menus that we serve, everybody gets the same food. Mm-hmm. So if we serve a piece of filet of fish, a, fi- a fish filet, everybody is going to get the center. Um, so we have a lot of trimmings uh-huh. um, and a lot of waste. Right. And that waste can is Be it's good. Yeah. Um, and through fermentation processes, we can use it for next menus and build ourselves a pantry. And then it started clicking. Um, mm. So since July 2021, okay. we're a zero waste restaurant. Um, we've zero, moved, zero. I mean, I'll say 98%. Pretty, pretty close. Um, <laughs> but we strive to be zero, zero. Um, there's, there's no such thing, I believe, as really completely 100% because you, mm-hmm. you're always going to, first of all, when you taste and something doesn't come out good or, you know, and it's, or it's rotten or something, you can't, there's not That's much you can do That's the nature of a kitchen But anyway. right now we're, we're trying to find a, compo- a compost and to tr- see how we can uh, mm-hmm. work together with somebody who, who can use compost um, for that. Um, but yeah, we, we've moved for an almost zero waste um, restaurant where we use all of the products to create through fermentation processes our pantry for the next menus. Um, but that goes further and we also work with our um, producers and our farmers mm-hmm. that get stuck with different produce that they can't sell. Uh-huh. So you end up changing the menu based on what? Yeah, so we, let's say we talk to our farmers and we say, okay, let's suddenly a farmer can come up to me and say, listen, they were just crazy winds and 600 kilo of green apricots that haven't even um, ripened um, are on the floor. Mm. And nobody's going to take 600 right, kilo. No one's going to use those. Um, and and we'll bought, we've bought, we at the time we bought, I think almost 450 What'd kilo. you do with them? Uh, we had a whole dish just about apricots. Um, <laughs> we had four different types of bread with apricots. It was the bread uh, serving here. Um, and we fermented, we cured, we, we made hot sauce. We, we you did had a different, lot of things uh, different, different processes, yeah. um, which aren't as interesting as just bringing the, the conversation to the table. 
because so what happens then so then you've got the apricot bread or and and you've and ha- you got your customers yeah. and we tell the story about yeah. what's going on right now on the menu we have a dish that's a homage to um there was a crisis with israeli garlic mm-hmm. um and it almost went extinct this year right um and and we put we bought at the time, 100 kilo of Israeli garlic, which is a lot of garlic. Yeah. Um, and we buy it almost once a month. And what we do with it is we have a dish only surrounding it because we want to tell the story. You want to put the focus on exactly. it. Exactly. And we tell the story. We don't even tell the customers what's happening on the plate, but we tell them about why it's important and what we did with it. And, right. And trying to, because people don't know what's going on. So how do people react? Mixed. Some people, I mean, we th- we were really scared that people are also going to be like, why are you serving me waste? Right. Um, not everyone thinks about then, it the same way. But then they taste it or they, they understand that it's not just waste, but it's a process. Because they're not coming here because of your no. zero waste kitchen. No, no. They're, they're coming because you're the hot restaurant. Right. And serve great food. Um, ex- we have one so. award. We try. We try. Um, so they, they're... They're very reciprocative and understanding, and they follow up and they ask a lot of questions. As well. uh-huh. So, uh, what, but then what happens for you? You've made this really your 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 calling in a sense. What, um, happen, what happens for you going forward? In so, a right sense? now, we just um, we we launched um, uh, products, mm-hmm. a line of products under the name of Tene. Tene means a basket. In right, Hebrew. there's a farm. The Tene Farm. There's a yeah. There's it's, yeah. A, it's a very common name. Yeah. Um, so basically, it's a basket or a pantry that we believe that these products can also or should be in people's homes mm-hmm. um, to make them better cooks without having to change what they're doing. So bringing OCD to people's homes. Right. Um, so let's say if you're cooking um, bolognese mm-hmm. uh, ragu at home and you're doing the same exact thing. But if you add a spoonful of our miso, mm-hmm. um, it's going to change and make it even better. Um, richer, deeper. Richer, deeper, more umami. Um, mm-hmm. You're going to caramelize it more. You're going to have everything. Or if you're going to use our soy sauce and you taste it versus right. store-bought soy sauce, you're going to taste the difference and you're not going to want to use store-bought soy sauce. Is there anything specifically Israeli or Tel aviv about OCD and about what you're doing? Yes, so the apricots fell. They they didn't get enough. They the wind brought them down onto the floor of the orchard, and you use them. But I'm wondering, do you see anything Israeli, or is this essentially just a global movement that you are bringing to this particular spot? It's a good question. Um, I I think it's happening in the world, and I think in Israel, it's up and coming. I, I believe that this is the next trend in the mm-hmm. food world. I see in cooks and restaurants, and first of all. I'm, I'm going to be completely honest. Talking about our pocket, restaurateurs and, and, yeah. and restaurants, every every gram of every product is important. Um, yeah. And we feel it. And we're privileged enough to know how many customers are going to come and to order the exact amount. But what happens if you're a restaurant that you order for 80 people in the evening and you don't and serve 30 people only? Come? Right. Um, so I think that's going to be the next trend. Mm-hmm. Um just in terms of the bottom line, just in the, terms of uh, revenue. I think I think people see it from the bottom line and then mm-hmm. they understand the value that it also has. Okay. Which, in my opinion, is just as important. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think that it's something that is really yet. Mm-hmm. I don't see 
It might just be in terms of what the produce is. Right. Right. Um, I mean, we're making it Israeli because we're here in Israel. And sure. We, we believe that we can really have an effect and mm -hmm. bring it also to to the world. Um, to the world. Yeah. But we we really we're trying to to educate. Yeah. If that's not a big enough, if that's not too big of a word. Um, and yeah, I think we really we we see where the world is going to. And sustainability is is running um, right. a lot of a lot of companies and a lot of restaurants, and we want to be we understand the importance of it. So now we're in the kitchen. Yep. And Shalom has uh, three, six, nine little, very uh, delectable looking ceramic bowls with <laughs> things that are in them, and he's going to tell us what they are. Um, so this is just a little bit of what the process is that we do here. Mm -hmm. um, Eight out of nine of these products are are from waste. Um, the ninth one is just. Am I something supposed to that, guess? Which no. Is yeah, you can. You can guess. Um, they tell us, finish your thought. They're just this. The ninth one is just something that we people love and, and really really adore. So it's also one of the products that we sell. Okay. Um, but all of these products are on the menu. Um, no, no. Oh, this okay. is it's on the menu, but that's oh, okay. not the product. That's not the product. Okay. Um, I'll go around. Yeah. Um, so this is what we call it's magic powder. So it's different. Um, all the after, basically after we uh, strain our, our soy sauces and our garums and um, our different vegetables that we the trimmings we dehydrate it and we um, dry it out. Wow. And basically, it's a umami powder. Um, this is vinegar made out of celery. So we had it has uh, a really green. It has really has the greenish tint. So okay. last year we had a dish where we only used the leaves, and we had nine kilos a day of celery. So the stalks, just the stalks, <laughs> um, and so and we had nothing to do with them. Right. Um, and that's and that's a balance about also because part meaning of my you job, weren't going to say I'm going to make something with the stalks. Besi in I mean, the restaurant, yeah. yes, in the restaurant for, for the menu. Got yeah. it. I mean, that's that's also closing the loop. Um, part of my job here is also designing the the menus. Uh huh. Um, part of R and D with Raz. Um, so I also know when I build a dish, I know what's gonna be at the end of it and mm. the waste and what I can start making for the next menu. So I when I when when we plan, I'm planning a year ahead. Wow. Uh, knowing the seasonal, knowing the seasons, exactly. knowing the produce, okay. knowing the waste, and, and then the waste. what I can make from that waste. Okay, um, got it. So this is uh, celery vinegar. Okay, this is uh, we use a lot of limes and lemons in our restaurant. Obviously, mm -hmm. after we grate them and we juice them, all the peels that usually been thrown away, we uh, we blacken them like black garlic. Okay. Um, this is a dehydrator. This, this is, is a dehydrator. dehydrator. So we okay. keep it at 60 degrees. Okay. Um, and basically it's become black uh, lime, black lemon. Uh-huh. So right. it's like Persian, Persian I say lemon. I like Persian lime. Okay. But, lemon. Um, it's made out of lime and it, we had a dish Smelling over it, it. So you can really smell it. It smells like Sprite. <laughs> it smells like Sprite. It does. And it has this very dark brownish tint yep. to it. Um, and huh. it's one of the most amazing ingredients that we've uh, created here. Okay. Um, when we opened our bakery... Last year, we had a lot of tests, um, and we had a lot of uh, bread um, that was, wasn't was good enough. It was okay. We were, tasty. We were testing uh, Your breads, out right. and our, the, the, the correct recipe, and so we made a bread miso, um, ah. which is now being baked back into the bread. 
Wow. Um, so it's closing a, the loop. I'm just saying it's a very... It's uh, very, very dark. Very and, dark brown yeah. also. Very rich uh, looking. This is nine it's months old miso. Um, and it's closing the loop. So like we didn't throw away any bread. So you're saying crusts of bread. Every No, the whole entire bread. The whole I, bread. The whole bread. Is then made into this and miso. And made into a miso, yeah. Wow. Um, so we don't throw anything. Because miso, of course, is... Miso fermented. is a fermented uh, paste, paste that comes from Japan. Right. Um, basically, it's usually made out of soybeans or chickpeas. Uh, but why um, not make it out of bread? So that's that's what really has been going on in the past years in hmm. using the ancient techniques into modern cuisine and understanding that the limits, there are no limits and that you can do whatever you want. Clearly. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so so we have it on, we had it in our menu last Um Last menu in the summer, we had a dessert made mm-hmm. out of bread miso. Mm-hmm. So a dessert only made out of bread and bread miso. <laughs> um, so it was a soy sauce that was made out of... It's not a soy sauce. It's a... I mean... A soy... Pro- like a, like it was like... It, it's a process of making soy sauce, but only with bread. Right. So there's no soy in it. So it's not soy sauce, right. but it's a bread but sauce. It, got it. Um, and bread miso. But uh, a soy-like sauce. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's, it tastes like soy sauce. The right. Deep, the but it deep just has color, no but soy. But there's no soy in it. Fascinating. Um, this is actually a... This looks like, I'm just saying, it looks like a chili-ish sauce. So this is a is soy it? sauce made out of dates. Soy sauce made out of dates. Uh, but more orangey in tone. Yes, because it's mm-hmm. it's actually pretty young. It's only a month old. Uh, so it'll get a little darker yeah. as it ages. Exactly. The okay. longer it ages, basically what happens is very, 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 very slowly over mm-hmm. time, it caramelizes. So mm. if what happens when we put a hot pan and we take meat and we put it on a hot pan, right. caramelizes very quickly because right. it's high temperature and very quick. Okay. Um, what we're doing here is very low temperature, but very slow. Um, mm. So it just takes a lot longer, but it's going to... But then your flavors are richer, I imagine. The be- Yes. Yes. Often. Often. Okay. Um, this is a... We have on the menu right now um, almond milk that we... Um, we um, we cook uh, we we cook fish in the almond milk, okay. and then we have a lot of leftovers of almonds. Uh-huh. Um, and with the garlic that I was telling you about right. before, we made an almond garlic miso, which is like a scaldalia. Uh, wow! And it's uh, I would say it's like a burnt umber in yeah. in color and shade. So it's also a paste and chunkier like a, looking. It's a chunky because like we just use the almonds, it's the almonds. and I, I I usually grind it up afterwards. Wow! Um, about now this looks like soy sauce. So it's actually not. It's and it a is. gastrique, which is um, a sauce made out of vinegar and uh, caramel. Okay. Um, this is a blackberry vinegar. Right, because it is very deep. Very, very deep. Deep deep wine color, really. Yeah. And uh, thicker than soy sauce. Yes. Um, and this is olive oil jam, which I was telling you about, which ah, is not made out of waste. It's beautiful. Um, Looks like an egg yolk. Yeah. <laughs> um, people love it. It's it's quite uh, delicious. Yeah. And, and here's Raz. Hi. Shalom. Neymod. Want to say hi to us? Hi. And this is our this is our soy sauce. Um, that soy, is your soy sauce, is which is soy golden sauce. in color. Yes, um, because it's made out of buckwheat. Um, because both Raz and I, we come from um, Eastern European background. Kasha popcorn. Exactly. I just wrote about that. Right. Okay. Um, so we made it out of buckwheat and freaky. But so, did you like buckwheat as a kid? I mean, my dad made it when he made it, not just buckwheat. I it was fine. I didn't love it. Um, but now we, we really love I'm sure buckwheat. You do fun we have a miso buckwheat, and we right. have a, right now on the menu, we have a dessert that's made out of buckwheat. You're not making kasha varnish gifts with bow tie. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> We're not. We're God not. forbid. God um, forbid. But we'll probably, we, we, 
we always have a lot of um, part of our our kitchen is being a little bit chutzpah. Okay. Um, like kasha popcorn. Like kasha popcorn, or we wanted to make on uh, our menu right now. We wanted to do a gef- take on gefilte fish, uh, made out of shrimp. Crazy. Um, it didn't it didn't go on the menu. We want to push where we came from and what we know to the limit because we think that that's what Israeli food is. Aha, uh-huh. so that actually goes back to the earlier question. Yeah. Then. We, so we, then what is Israeli food at OCD? Oh, there's, there's a great um, sentence that we say that um, not everything that is local is Israeli and not everything that Israeli is local. So taking, it's like sort of, a, it's like a Israel, Israeli cuisine 2.4. I don't know. I don't know because I think it's all still in the making. Yeah, it's 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 still hasn't doesn't have a shape yet. Um, And we're also learning what we. No, but if you're thinking about making gefilte fish out of shrimp, or if you're, you know, we're trying to 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 take to have no limits, right? Um, But we're also seeing that if if both of us grew in Israel Mm -hmm. and Raza's grandmother lived in Israel and. and his mother lived in Israel, and, they, and your dad and was my Russian. dad is Russian, but we both had kasha right. or buckwheat in Israel. Why is that not Israeli? Why is just Moroccan fish Israeli? Mm-hmm. Like how how is this not part of the culinary scene? Mm-hmm. Because who said so? Right. Um, so what we grew up on, or what Ashkenazi food, or it doesn't even matter if it's Ashkenazi, but things that we have from home that we grew up in Israel. Why aren't they part of the cuisine? Right, um, right. So how much how much uh, arguing or discussion is there around those menus that you change every few months? We talk about and we look. We work a lot. A lot. I mean, the moment. I'm that, sorry that's just about the that. sound of the saran wrap roll yeah. falling. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, basically, when we change a menu, so it's I, a week later. I'm already working on the next menu. Wow. But I already have. But it only took you. How long does it take you to make the every menu? Every four months. Every it takes four months to create a menu. It cr- oh, so it does take four months. It to takes create four a months, menu. but you also start a year ago because I know that next year I'm going to have this miso paste. Yeah, the almond garlic exactly miso. that is going to be ready. Uh, ah, to put into the dishes exactly. for that menu. Even Got though it. it's on the menu as well now, but in a different shape. Um, but yeah, and form. Um. And yeah, and, and, and it takes a lot of time. And because of my job that we were trying to push Tene um, to be in the forefront. Right. Um, so it's a balance of building the menu, um, talking about what we're trying to speak with the menu mm-hmm. and to, to give through, and also creating actual dishes that taste good. Because if it doesn't taste good, right. it's obviously not. So, and how much are you influenced by your colleagues around you, the restaurants around you, the food around you. Oh, I mean, it's an amazing scene what's going on in Israel and now mm-hmm. what's, to see what's happening. And and I think it's really like, it's like um, the forest right after it rains and mm-hmm. looking for mushrooms. Like that's what I feel the culinary scene is going on right now. It's, mm-hmm. it's like, it's, it's very, very, very alive and it's very vibrant. And I think everybody in their own way, every chef and every restaurant is taking their own direction into developing what Israeli cuisine is. I, right. I mean, we don't know. And we don't have it yet. I, I feel like it's not mm-hmm. a full, we can't say this is Israeli cuisine yet um, because also 75 years is not that long. Very, 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 very when young. When you come from Italy. Yeah. yeah I mean, like, 
And I think that's the beauty also. Like, if I would be in Italy right now, my possibility of changing the culture would be zero. Because... Right, because it's been there for so long. It's been there for years. And yeah. who am I to ever come and talk about what you're a doing type of here. pasta? Yeah. Where, yeah. Who am I? But what about this? But this, but this is fermentation is, is is a way that you know, like we have the possibility to create what Israeli cuisine is, or try to recreate what Israeli cuisine, is, and, and doing it in also a way that's responsible and and giving added value to cooks, to to farmers, to people. Mm -hmm. um, so it's uh, yeah. And here we just got our fish um, for the day. Uh, Heads and tails. So we have, no. uh, yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> and what's in the middle? Uh, exactly. <laughs> um, so so yeah, I think it's that's that's what we're trying to do here is to really give also our cooks the responsibility and for them the understanding of what it means to be a new cook mm -hmm. to, to think about not only the plate but what comes beforehand mm. and and after and after exactly <laughs> and to think already. I mean, obviously nobody's going to work here forever. And I want cooks who leave here to think, to bring this mentality to other places. Mm -hmm. I want them to go mm -hmm. and build their own dishes or restaurants and have it in their DNA to really, because that's how you create change. That not only right. if I do it, but if other people do it. And, and if they're going to build dishes around their waste. Right. Then, then, then you've then, done it. Then I don't know if I've done it, but well, I, you're I'm, on the way I'm, to exactly. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'll be very happy to to see that. Shalom, it has been a pleasure to hear about you what so you're doing much. here. Thank you so much. Okay, listeners, you'll <sighs> be hearing from us again soon. In the meantime, we thank you for being with us and happy listening. Thanks so much for listening to Times Will Tell from the Times of Israel. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein. Please subscribe wherever you find your podcast and check out our daily briefing news show every Sunday through Thursday. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. Until next week. Shalom. Shalom.